feel like I should dance or something when that music's playing. Everybody who knows me is like, no, don't do that. Yeah, like, whoo, thank God. Patrick Kitely is hot, and, and Vanessa may or may not have been the person that said that. So anyways, just saying, hilarious. Flashback, right, to history in the City Life Church moments that are just made everybody laugh. So yeah, it's good. Hey, I just, I, you know, the, um, the racial taboo, I'm, November 5th is going to be one of the most important services that we've ever had at City Life, ever. It's going to be a story, and it's going to be, and, and it's going to stand that way for, for years to come. I believe that. And uh, we had the privilege of meeting Brian Grimm, the producer of that film, and uh, pa- several pastors from the area gathered to watch that uh, not too long ago, and, uh, and our staff was there together, and, and we came away f- from that saying, we, we have got to show that at all three of our campuses, and so we are. Uh, November 5th, every campus is going to do it a little bit different. The way we're going to do it here is we're going to do uh, an, ab- an abbreviated service. Uh, it's going to have a prayer emphasis, and then we're going to watch that film together. We're going to have a meal together, uh, and then we're also going to uh, uh, do some after discussion into some small groups, and it's going to be powerful. So uh, uh, Chris House, who's our, our worship and uh, creative arts director, his mom, Pastor Gail House, pastors a church in Phoebus, uh, they're going to come and join us that night and, uh, and, and do this uh, experience with us. It's, it's going to be so good. So you need to be here November 5th, and you need to bring some people with you. And uh, the only way that we're going to change our nation is to start talking to each other, and, uh, and we're going to do it. We're going to do it that night. So uh, i got a couple other things I just want to point out, and then I want to sh- share some things in my heart, and then uh, we're going to dive into this message, and then what I don't get to, I'll blog uh, about this week so that you can uh, get all of this teaching that I feel is an important uh, completion to our series. But uh, tonight, uh, tonight, and then for the next three weeks, where's Jerry and Priscilla? They're right back there. Uh, Jerry and Priscilla and their daughter Karen. Karen's pointing to her parents, but uh, they've had just a burden to gather to pray uh, leading up to the election, and so they're opening up their home uh, on Saturday nights from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. If you want to gather there and join them in prayer, they've got to scoot out tonight because their son has a football game, but I've got their address right here. Uh, They've been hosting a life group at their house. Marvin and Sharon have been facilitating that, so if you've been at that, you have been there, and uh, so I would encourage you, at, at least one of those four weeks, Jump in, right? At least one of those four. Uh, jump in and, uh, and, and uh, uh, just join your voice in that place of prayer because we know it matters and we know it makes a difference. So, hey, the other thing for Oktoberfest, which I just want to encourage you, we're going to be canvassing this neighborhood. We got approval just on Friday. Uh, from Newport News school systems to uh, give our flyers to elementary school across the street. So we're going to be doing that this week. Uh, And then also on the the 22nd from 10 to 12, we're going to meet here at 10 a.m., uh, and then we're going to, actually, we want to meet here about quarter of, and then we're at 10 o'clock, we're just going to canvas this neighborhood. We've got the flyers that we're going to hand out. We just want to invite people. We're a neighbor here, right, in this community. And so we want to invite our neighbors to come out and, uh, and just have a good time with us on Saturday. And so if you're one of those people that struggles with talking to other people about church, this is the perfect time for you to do it because you're going to be with a group of people, and it just kind of helps you break the ice in your own personality to begin to talk with people uh, about church in Christ. And so I hope that you'll come and, uh, and join us on that. So big weeks that are coming uh, ahead of us, big weeks. So 
And then on the 22nd next week kicks off our, our series, Race and Politics. So, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to this message, but it's interesting that, that uh, Vanessa, when she got up for her wrap-up, because we we've not talked about this, uh, when I was upstairs earlier today in the office praying, I, just, I felt like God began to speak to me about the difference between what's real and what's fake, what's sincere and what's authentic. And we've not had that conversation. And so she gets up, and then she's doing that as the wrap-up. So I'm just, God is after somebody in this room tonight. Can, can I just say that? And so if that's you, I just, I, I just want to come back to that for a few minutes. And so I, I made some notes for a sermon that I thought was going to be at some point in the future, what I didn't know, that it was God was doing something prophetic in the service tonight. And so I just want to share some of those thoughts. So this necklace that you see, you seldom see me without this necklace. I have it on all the time. What's, what's interesting about this necklace is that it's an ankh, which is a uh, pagan religious symbol. Right? And so people are like, well, that's a little odd. You're a Christian pastor and you wear a pagan a religious symbol around your neck all the time. And so I, I wear this because for my entire life, I grew up in a Christian home, uh, but I, I was that kid that lived two lives, right? I was the person that my parents wanted me to be when I was at church and in that circle, and then I was who I wanted to be uh, when I was somewhere else. And so this, this duplicity has been part of my story growing up, and it's not part of my story now, but it was part of my story then. And, and so I wear this to remind me, because it looks like a cross, but it's not. It, it looks like a cross, but it's not. My life looked like it was... Christian, but it wasn't. And, and, for, and that might be you. For whoever it is that God's trying to reach tonight, this might be what he's trying to reach you about. That, that you have the appearance of Christianity in your life, but you couldn't be farther from the truth. And, and God wants to, you to exchange something that is similar for something that is synonymous. He wants you to trade in what's similar in exchange for something that's synonymous, something that's real and genuine for the Word of God. If you're living in this place where you're trying to be someone that you're not, God says, hey, how about leaving that behind and embracing the person that I've called and created you to be? The, the interesting thing about pretense is, is why it's such a, an affront to God is because you're settling for something far less. The, the idea of, of pretense, the idea of, of, of settling for something that's a cheap imitation, is, I, the, it offends God so deeply is, is because you've bought into the lie of the devil that if you were to lay down that and pick up what's real, that, that you're, that you're going to embrace this life that's boring and monotonous. Right? Christianity is going to be the greatest adventure that you've ever been on in your life. And, and, and the devil has you trapped in this place of being content with the world of pretend when God wants to set you free into the place of real. And, 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 and my encouragement to you is, it's up to you. It's the difference between the two, it's your choice to say, I want the real thing. I'm tired of pretense. I'm, I'm tired of inauthenticity. I'm tired of, of something that's similar. I want something that's real. I want something that's synonymous to what this book says and what's synonymous. I think sometimes, too, because this is what I believed when I was a kid. I believed that everybody else was doing the same thing I was. That's part of the lie of the enemy. right? You come to church and you show up and you know you're pretending. And when you're really good at pretending, you know what you believe? You believe that everybody else is pretending, too. Right? And some of the reason why we believe that is because we know some other people are pretending in the room. 
And so we choose, we, we, we adopt this mindset and mentality of this must be what Christianity is. It's me pretending to be something that I'm not. And what we're seeing at City Life is we're not perfect here and we're okay with that. We, we would rather be honest about our imperfections and walk in a place of sincerity and, and, and authenticity than live in a place that, that looks better than it is, that we project something that we're not and settle for a cheap invitation. This could be the night that you mark in your calendar that's the beginning of the rest of your life where you say, I'm going to walk away from pretense. I'm going to walk away from duplicity. I'm going to walk away from pretending of being something that I'm not. I'm going to find someone and talk with them about the, this, this struggle that I have. I'm going to stop pretending to be something that I'm not. And I'm going to move forward in a place of openness and authenticity. Father, for you're, you're trying to reach someone tonight. And so we always want to make room in these moments in our service when you've got someone's attention to deliver a message that we feel that you're trying to give. And, 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 it, and, you, and it couldn't be more obvious to us tonight, God, that there's someone here that you're trying to reach. And so for whoever that person is, I pray, Father, that the conviction of your Holy Spirit would, would just well up inside of them in such a profound way that, that they would... They wouldn't be intimidated by the response that you're asking them to bring, but they would be relieved and refreshed by it. That there would, there would be something of, 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 of a restfulness that's welling up inside of them because they're weary from carrying the burden of pretending. And that there is a freedom and there is a liberty that comes with sincerity. And I pray that whoever that is, Father, that, that, that maybe they're going to reach out to me or somebody else here tonight that they know and they, that they trust. And, and, and they're going to have this moment of confession. And it's going to begin their journey of something that's real. Come on in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, we're wrapping up this series, Stranger Things, uh, tonight that we have been in uh, for the last few weeks. It's, this, the series has been a, a, about exploring some strange things that we find in the Bible, and so we've been digging around in 1 Corinthians 12 quite a bit, so if you're visiting with us, you can get all those sermons through our podcast on our website. We also put the notes to the sermon. We tend to cover a lot of ground. The messages tend to be textually heavy, lots of verses, and so we put all that online because we might move faster than you would prefer if you're a note taker, and so we make that available to you and you can download that uh, easily from our website. So, so we've, we've been wrapping up the series. We started last week talking about the Holy Spirit and so we dug deep into Pentecost and what that's about and why it happened during the Feast of Pentecost and how we, we understand as a church all the prophetic imagery that comes with Passover and then there's all this prophetic imagery that comes with Pentecost that, that just is lost to people and so we gave all of last week's message to really dig in there and then what, what I want to do tonight is we're going to dig specifically into this idea idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and to unpack uh, this, this, uh, uh, what the Bible calls spiritual language. So this is my working definition of what it means to be Pentecostal. It's that we have an unshakable belief that God still does the impossible. And sometimes he wants to do supernatural things through us. Just as he did at the first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection. That, that as a church... We have a Pentecostal theology, and, and, and it means that the God that is in this book is the God that is in this world and the God that wants to be active in this life, and that we should have an expectation for supernatural things, and we should embrace it. 
So, so last week we talked about Pentecost and the significance of that. And, and, and I want to talk about this verse in 1 Corinthians 16.22 because it reminds us of why we need the Holy Spirit's power at work in our lives. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn there. This is going to kind of be our launching point. Then I'm going to answer five questions about spiritual language tonight. Maybe five questions that you've asked yourself. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, if anyone does not love the Lord, that person is cursed. And, and then there's this phrase that says, our Lord come. Our Lord come. And in the Greek, the word that Paul wrote there is the word maranatha. Right? And if you were around in the 70s in the church, anybody around, there was, right, Maranatha was a, 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 a big uh, Pentecostal movement that happened. There was a Maranatha music that came, right, with that, with that movement. And they borrowed this word from this text. Now, this is an interesting word. I like it because depending on where you put one letter in this word when you spell it determines the meaning. So if you write the word M A R A N A, and then hyphen T-H-A, it means our Lord comes. It means that Jesus is coming back. We know we believe that Jesus is coming back. He said that to disciples in, in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you, right? If I go to prepare a place for you, I come so that you might be with me where I am also. He's going to come back and bring us home. But if you move that A to the right and you spell it M-A-R-A-N and then put the hyphen there, A-T-H-A, it means our Lord has come. Now, in all of the documents that we have in the manuscripts, it's not clear which way it's supposed to be spelled. And so people ask the question, which is it? Is Maranatha this word that God gave to the church to remind us that the Lord is coming? Or is it a word that God gave to the church to remind us that he has come and that he's the savior of the world? I believe that God gave us this great word, not because we're supposed to pick, but because this word gives us the essence of our creed as Christians, that he has come and that he's coming again. He gave us this word because it's supposed to mean both things, and both things are supposed to drive our life. I have this, this belief, this unshakable conviction that Jesus has come, that he's the Savior of the world, and that he died on the cross so that I could be reconciled to God, that he rose from the dead and broke the, sin of, 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 broke the curse of sin and death, and that one day he's going to come again, which is my blessed hope. And therein lies the message of the gospel that we're supposed to bring to the world. Our mission is a Maranatha mission. As devoted followers of Christ, our lives in deed and in word should be saying to the world, Jesus has come and that he's coming again. And you and I will never be able to fulfill that mission without the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. The Holy Spirit came at the Feast of Pentecost when the church was birthed because that was the beginning of them being commissioned, for them to begin to fulfill the great commission that was given to them 40 days prior. Now it's time for them to go out and do the work. And Peter steps up and he delivers the first sermon of the first church and 3,000 people come to Christ on that day. It was a Maranatha moment. The people that came to Christ that day had a revelation that Jesus had come and that he was coming again. And that Maranatha mission is the mission that we carry today 2,000 years later. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This supernatural thing that happened to these believers 2,000 years ago that were gathered in this place that's called the 
upper room, and they were there because Jesus had told them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And they didn't know what that was going to be, what that was going to look like. They had been praying there. for We talked about it last week, we know, for about 10 days straight. And there, on that 10th day, something incredible happened. When we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, let me share this thought with you. When we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, who God is inside of us already. When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, all of who God is is inside of you. When we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, who God is inside of us washes out and over the rest of our immaterial self, leaving behind gifts and abilities that are intended to enrich our lives with God and empower our lives to reach others. It's to enrich our life with God and to empower our life to reach others. We're going to talk about it in just a minute when we get to this idea, is it different from my moment of salvation when I make a vow of devotion to Christ? When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, you get all of the Holy Spirit inside of you. He doesn't piecemeal himself out to you. But the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the spiritual side of who you are, which is part of your immaterial self. It's the right, we've all heard the saying probably before, these bodies, they're just transportation. Some of us would rather have transportation that looks different than what we've got, but this is what we drove off the lot with by God's design. So watching the David was up here for announcements, then video announcements. I turned to Kelby and Paige, who are trainers. I said, he's pretty buff, isn't he? Right? I was like, I don't like to go onto the stage after him. Right? My transportation looks different than his transportation. You might not like your transportation, but this part of you isn't the eternal part. It's just carrying around the immaterial part of who you are that makes you unique and makes you special, and that's the part of you that's going to live forever. I tell people all the time, you're not going to recognize me in heaven because I'm going to have this ponytail, and it's going to be great. Who would that? He sounds like Pastor Fred, but he just looks so different. Right. You don't get more of who he is. He gets more of, of who you are when you experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You don't get more of who he is because you've already got all of who he is. But he gets more of who you are. There's a place of surrender that, that breaks out in you that releases the Holy Spirit to begin to wash over the rest of who you are. Your mind and your emotions and your, and your will. It's, it, it's like a wave that comes out of your spirit and just begins to make wet. See, baptism in, in the Greek is baptizo, and it means to be made fully wet. That's why we do baptism through immersion. How about, right, we did our first baptisms here just several weeks ago. We're going to do another baptism service before the end of the year. If you've never been water baptized, we're going to be doing that here. We love that we're going to be able to do it as part of our services. That happens inside of you. Just like when you go down into the water, you come up, you're, you're, you're made fully wet, and all the imagery that comes with that, well, when you experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that happens inside of you. The, the Holy Spirit rises up and wells up. It's part of what Jesus was talking about with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4, rivers of living water welling up inside of you. There's a, there's a threshold that, that you break through of surrender that, 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 that gives the Holy Spirit, who's a perfect gentleman, permission to begin to touch parts of you that you've not wanted him to touch before. John 20, 22, listen to this verse. This is a post-resurrection encounter that Jesus had with the disciples. It says, then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if 
he had not breathed on them, then we might be inclined to believe that he was giving them a prophetic word over what was going to happen to them in about 50 days at Pentecost. But he doesn't just say receive the Holy Spirit, he breathes on them. Now they understood what that was because all of these people in this room grew up Jewish. So they grew up studying the scriptures. So they understood Genesis. What does God do for Adam when he gathers him together from the dust of the earth? He breathes on him. In the Hebrew, it's the Ruach HaKodesh, the, the breath of God. They understood in that moment what Adam and Eve had lost, they now had for the first time. Since paradise had been lost, the Holy Spirit had not indwelt anyone until Jesus had died on the cross so sin could be forgiven. And the cross is like this filter of grace that the Holy Spirit pours through and all of the judgment of God rests with him and all of his goodness comes to us and it makes it possible for the Holy Spirit to be in us again. Not just with us and around us, and, but in us. Part of who we are. That's what happened. 2,000 years ago at the birthing of the church, and that's what God wants to happen for all of us. I think that God separated the outpouring of the Holy Spirit from the death of Jesus on the cross because he wanted us to understand that even though they can happen to us at the same time, I've known people who have made a vow of devotion to Christ, and in that moment also they experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But just because it happened simultaneously doesn't mean that it wasn't two different experiences. And, and so I think God, everything he does is with intention. He separates them. He, he made forgiveness possible. The, the, the disciples, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So we know they, they received the Holy Spirit in that moment. But in, in Acts chapter 2, this, there's this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit where, where the Holy Spirit came upon them and then the Holy Spirit welled up inside of them. God separated these two things, these two events, because he wanted us to not confuse them as the same thing. I like to think of it as a spiritual chiropractic experience. Anybody have a chiropractor? I love my chiropractor. Dr. Egan, I'm Big Bethel, right? He makes you cry for your mama, but you leave feeling a lot better. You get a little bit out of alignment in your body, especially when you get older like I am. And, 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 and he helps get everything back aligned so your body can function the way that it's supposed to. The immaterial part of who we are, it gets out of whack. Selfishness and whatever else you want to add to that list. And this moment where, where you experience salvation, I, again, we call it making a, a vow of devotion to Christ and you take your first spiritual breath, uh, you get all of who the Holy Spirit is inside of you. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's like the first time you let him be your spiritual chiropractor and he begins to align you in a, in a way where you've been misaligned for so long. See, that's why the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's a first time you experience it, but then you're supposed to be experiencing that baptism for the rest of your life. It's not a one-time thing. It's a one-time beginning, 
But then that's why you read throughout the rest of the New Testament where it talks about how they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And you might have read that before and said, well, I thought they were filled with the Holy Spirit then. I thought they were baptized in the Holy Spirit before. Well, that was their first time. Now this is their next time. All of us need a next time for the rest of our lives. We need a next time. Because the will sometimes chooses wrong and it chooses self and and we get out of alignment and the Holy Spirit comes and makes it right again. So is it different from salvation? That's my first question. The answer is yes. It can happen at the same time, but it's two different encounters and two different experiences. They might overlay, but don't confuse that as the same thing. Number two, why, why haven't I heard this before? I've got that question a lot. Fred, how is it I've been around the church and haven't heard this kind of teaching before? Hebrews 6, let me read this, verses 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, right? That's the moment of salvation. And the faith in God, verse 2, right? He's, he's, he's giving us, or she, we don't know, writer of Hebrews, right? Some people believe it could be Priscilla from Priscilla and Aquila, right? It could be Paul, we don't know. It's, there's not a name attached to it, right? So, so this idea of, of who, th- there's, a, there's a list of what's foundational, meaning it's elementary. It uses the word elementary. It's just basic stuff. Repentance, faith, listen to this, instruction, verse 2, about baptisms. It's plural. I'm believing that the Holy Spirit didn't make a mistake there, made it plural for a reason. Because the Bible speaks about four specific kinds of baptisms. It uses the word baptism in four very specific ways. There's Acts 2.38, there's 1 Corinthians 12.13, there's also Matthew 3.11-12. Again, these notes are going to be online, and then there's the baptism we talk about today. One of those is talking about being baptized, as in your water baptism, as an outward sign of an, of an inward decision that your water baptism that you do for salvation, like what we do in this tank, right? The Bible talks about a baptism of fire. People misunderstand that as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but when there it is in Matthew, uh, I think it's in Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of fire is not about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's about the baptism of trial. It means that God is going to baptize you in suffering at times in your life because it brings a birthing of character in you that good times could never accomplish. Right? So there's a baptism of fire that's a baptism of trial. And then it's also used to, as, a, as imagery for when you become a part of a local church, when you're baptized into the church. Now, it's not talking about any of the other three. It's talking about a unique one. It means that it uses the word baptism because being a part of a local church means that you should be fully immersed. Just like you're fully immersed in the water, you should be fully immersed in the family. Right? And then there's this fourth one. It's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's plural here in Hebrews 6 because there's four baptisms. Let me share this thought. Acceptance among our secular culture over the last 2,000 years, it's not, it's not odd to follow a spiritual leader such as Jesus. It's not odd to believe that difficult circumstances build character. It's not odd to join and be devoted to a spiritual community. It is, however, still considered quite odd to profess having had a supernatural encounter that leaves a person with the ability to pray and worship in a spiritual language. So I find that interesting. Right? 2,000 years ago, this was called elementary. And now we've adopted this mindset, well, let's be careful, that's for the spiritual elite, right? 
Let's be careful. This idea of spiritual language and these supernatural encounters, it's, it's like when you're, when you're watching some video about people doing crazy things and it says, do not try that. These are trained professionals, right? Whoever wrote Hebrews, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, hey, all of these baptisms, and this is one of them, it's elementary. Our heart as a church at City Life is that we want that to be true again for the church today. That moving in the supernatural is something that would be foundational. Not for the elite. Because I don't really think there are elites. Come on. Acts 2.39. This promise, what we're talking about tonight. Acts 2.39. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those who are far away. That's us. To far away. Not, not far away in distance. We know it's not geographical because it says to you and to your children. So, so this is like right the dreaded SATs where you get that thing where you've got to finish the pattern. I was terrible at that stuff, right? To you and to your children, the pattern is not geographic. The pattern is generational. To you, to your children, and to those who are far off is speaking of generations to come. That's us. And the idea is that it continues on forever. Luke 24, 28 to 31. Luke 24, 28 to 31. It's another post-resurrection encounter. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. And Jesus acted as if he were going on. But they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. They didn't know it was Jesus yet. So he's died. He's risen from the dead. And in his resurrected state, he's walking with this two men traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. So he went home with them, and as they sat down to eat, he took bread and he blessed it, and then he broke it and he gave it to them. And suddenly, listen to this, suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. What a story to tell. He's there, and then he's gone. It's that ministry of teleportation we talked about last week. Listen to this. The first I love, this is such a great story. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as, we, as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? I, I like this story when I'm talking about this idea. Is it different from salvation? Because it might be that you have come in here tonight and you've been taught something completely different your whole life from what I'm teaching you tonight. And all that I would ask of you is to have a, a, a Luke 24 heart that says, Jesus, if, if my eyes have not been opened up until today, then open them for me like you did the two men on the road to Emmaus. This idea of God bringing new revelation to us, it's still got to fit within the boundary of Scripture. But Luke 24 is given to us for many reasons, but one of the reasons it's given to us is to remind us that just because we've not understood it yet doesn't mean that we're not going to understand it soon. Just because it's been outside of our realm of understanding until now doesn't mean that it's going to remain outside of the, our realm of understanding forever. Part of being a devoted follower of Christ is having an appetite for revelation that is increasingly broadening, always boundaried by the Word of God, but ever-increasing our eyes being open to things that we didn't know before but need to be open to now. Question number three. 
So question number one, is it different from salvation? Question number two, why haven't I heard this before? Question number three is, will I lose control of myself? This is my answer to you. You will be in control of yourself to the degree that you are now. For some of you, that might not be good. Galatians 5, 22 to 23, it's one of our five great growth lists, right? We did our whole summer on that. You can get all those sermons online. We did five great growth lists. Dr. George Wood, one of my favorite modern-day scholars, the general superintendent of the, of the Assemblies of God, has identified five texts as five great growth lists. They all list virtues, and that's where we get our 24 virtue, virtues that is, the, is the, uh, uh, the culmination of our discipleship model, the 1, the 6, the 12, and the 24, because I'm supposed to become these 24 virtues. It's the perfect picture of the of the character of Christ. It's the portrait of the character of Christ. And one of those comes out of Galatians 5. It's one of the five great growth lists, and one of those virtues is self-control. So when a person says, who's being out of control, I was moving in the Holy Spirit, I couldn't help it, that's not ever going to be the Holy Spirit. might be your spirit, might be some other spirit, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is not ever out of control. Doesn't mean it can't be impassioned. It doesn't mean it can't, can't, can't be demonstrative. Doesn't mean that it can't be loud. It doesn't mean that it, it can't not, not necessarily make you uncomfortable. It might if you're not used to being around impassioned worship. But it should never look like out of control. It should never look like out of control. Because if it looks like out of control, then it feels like out of control, and it sounds like out of control, it's not the Holy Spirit. And I think God gets a bad rap for a lot of things that he never had anything to do with. Because it's people, as we talked about last week, trying to ring their own bell. 1 Corinthians 14, 32. 1 Corinthians 14, 32. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. It can be absolutely supernatural and absolutely orderly. And in fact, I would say the more orderly it is, the more supernatural it's going to be. Paul's writing to the church of Corinth because they have an out-of-control problem. That's why these two letters are given to the church of Corinth. It's because they, were, were in, they, they moved in incredible supernatural ways, but they were just continually out of order. And Paul's trying to say that part of what's happening among you is not of God. So he's saying, hey, right, 2,000 years ago, he was having the same conversation we're having with people today. 1 Corinthians 14, 40. Look at this verse. But be sure that everything is done properly and in order. Properly and in order. Why? Because people should be in control of themselves. Why? Because it's one of the virtues that represents the character of Christ. And the character of Christ will never be at odds with the Holy Spirit in you. The character of Christ will never be at odds with the Holy Spirit who is in us. Number four is spiritual language for everyone. Spiritual language for everyone. All right, let's read Acts 2, 1 through 13. On the day of Pentecost, all believers were meeting together in one place. Right? 
all the Christians of all the world could fit in one room 2,000 years ago. Powerful, isn't it? Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Not some of them, all of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. Interesting, isn't it? Because some of them who were present had been present several days before when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So now they're experiencing something new and afresh. And what does it say? It says they began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of that because we read it last week and broke down that text and what it meant. But I'm sharing that with you because it's important for us to see that it happened to everyone who was there. I think that the belief that circulates throughout Christian circles today that it's not for everyone is because there's a misunderstanding of the three different ways that the Bible speaks about spiritual language. So if you're only understanding spiritual language through one lens, then it's, it's the correct conclusion that that's not for everyone. But there's other ways that the Bible speaks about spiritual language, and I'm going to give you the three that I believe. And when you begin to realize that it's the same concept, but, ex, but experienced in three different ways, it, that might be the breakthrough barrier that you've been struggling with for why it's not happened to you. I find it also fascinating is the, the, the church that we came from, uh, Mechanicsville Christian Center years ago, uh, Pastor Carter Goolsby uh, was, was preaching uh, one Sunday morning about this text and he made the comment, he said, do you ever find it interesting that the way that God divided the world at the Tower of Babel through dividing the world through language, that he reunited the world through language at the birthing of the church. It's like, come on, right? That's so good. Hey, the Bible's connected to itself because it all came from the same person, right? So there's this division that comes through language, earthly language, and then now that, right, there's something that's supposed to be built, not a tower that glorifies ourselves, but something called the church. We talked about it last week. One of Jesus' declarative statements, he had two, I came to seek and save the lost, and he said, I came to build my church, right? We're, he, he created division so the world wouldn't get caught up in the towers of building up ourselves because one day he was going to call us to build something greater, something that's eternal, something that's a house for him. And he reunited the world in that moment through language, not earthly language, but spiritual language. And it's one of the great gifts he gives to us today. There is the person whose primary gift to the body of Christ is a prophetic ministry of declaring a message from God that must be accompanied by an interpretation. This might not be your calling. This might not be who God's made you to be to the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 29 to 30. Again, all these notes are going to be aligned for you. 
1 Corinthians 12, 29 to 30 is speaking to this person who has this gifting, who has this calling, this church that we came from. It's the church where when I was uh, in 1990, I was going there with my parents. I was 23 years old. I may have made a vow of devotion to Christ that year. That was the beginning of my, my Christian journey. And there was an elder at that church. His name was Charlie Bevels. And, 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 and he typically had in the service a prophetic word from God that he brought in a spiritual language. One of those was a significant moment in my life. I don't have time to tell it tonight. I've told the story before where, where, where I was coming to church, but I wasn't a devoted follower of Christ yet. And that message that he brought that day was for me. Like hopefully the message that we're talking about, the difference between real and fake, that that message is for someone here. God, God right? We're not following you around, but the Holy Spirit is. And then he whispers stuff to other people about you. That's right. God talks about you behind your back because you need it. God's never guilty of gossip. We just call it prophecy, right? Your calling in the body of Christ might not be to have a prophetic ministry through spiritual language and the interpretation of spiritual language, but that's some people's calling. Now, here's another one. There's moments when people are compelled by God to be an instrument of his being manifested to the world. That's why we dug around so much in the nine manifestational gifts. We broke those up into three different groups in this series, and we talked about all of them and how they relate to each other. Those, you and I are candidate for all of those things. For all of those things. Not because it's now our gift and it's who God made us to be. It's because sometimes God uses us to reveal himself to the world and he just does it supernaturally. It doesn't mean that that's now your identity in the body of Christ because ultimately your identity in the body of Christ is to be willing, a willing vessel for your creator. So it might be that just in a supernatural moment, there's a message that God gives to you in a spiritual language that must be accompanied by an interpretation. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 11. Again, we talked about that at great length last week and the weeks prior. So this is the third one, right? This is the for everybody moment. There is the ability to express ourselves to God in times of prayer and worship unencumbered by human intellect and earthly language. If you're the smartest person in this room, there's limits to your intellect. If you speak more languages than anybody else in this world, there's still limits to your vocabulary. 1 Corinthians 14, 18. Listen to what Paul says. I thank God that I speak in tongues. Again, we call it spiritual language. Tongues meant languages back in his day. I like, we like to use the word language today. I thank God that I speak in spiritual language more than all of you. I love that verse. I think it's clear what Paul is saying here is that his assumption is that everybody he's writing to speaks in a spiritual language. He's saying, more than all of you, all of you who operate in this experience of a spiritual language, he says, I do that more than the rest of you. You can read the whole chapter to understand why he's doing that. It's not a, it's, it's not a, a moment of boast. It's a moment of teaching. Right? It's a moment of correction. But what he's saying is, everybody I'm writing this letter to, his assumption is that all of them, spiritual language is a part of their life. How can that be? 
Not all of them are called to prophetic ministry. Not all of them have experienced a manifestational moment where God shows them a prophetic moment. But he does assume that all of them have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit in spiritual language as a part of their journey and a part of their life. He goes on and Verses 1 through 17, he's talking about a spiritual gift that's a prophetic ministry in church gatherings. In verse 18, he's referencing spiritual language for the personal life. Then in verse 19, he goes back to talking about meetings. All these notes that are online, you can get that. If you've got questions about 1 Corinthians 14, a lot of people use this chapter to talk about why it's not for everybody, and it's actually just the opposite. When Paul gives the prohibition in 1 Corinthians 14 against spiritual language, he's not giving a prohibition of spiritual language in the church. What he's saying is, hey, if you're not going to do it right, don't do it at all because it becomes a distraction. That's what Paul said. His prohibition is not against it. He's saying if you're going to do it for your own vainglory, if you're going to do it because you're trying to ring your own bell, if you're going to do it and it's not going to be in decency and order, then for the rest of us, please stop it because you're giving God and us a bad name. That's what Paul's saying. And so what we want to do as a church is we want to say, long for the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. All of us at some point in our life have had a hard time finding the words to say. Now, you might be sitting next to somebody and go, no, I'm pretty sure they always got a word somewhere. Even if you're the most extroverted verbal person on the planet, there's been a time where you've experienced something that left you speechless. Why wouldn't God, who has no limits... When he's creating something called a spiritual family, John chapter 1, why wouldn't he say to us, you never have to experience that with me? Ever. That you can begin to pray and worship in a language that's not your own, in a heavenly language, a spiritual language. And you're completely and totally unencumbered by earthly language and human intellect. When we're worshiping on Saturday nights, I'm singing in spiritual language more than I am because it's a lot of work to read the words on the screen and keep track and conjugate verbs. You're like, come on, spiritual. those of us who are grammatically challenged, spiritual language is a great gift. And it's a great gift I believe that God wants everyone to have. If I'm not understanding what I'm saying, then why does it matter? I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Come on, the Bible is so rich to us. Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize, right? Because Paul's covered a lot of ground. When you pick up in verse chapter 12 in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 12, then you got 13, then all the 14. It's some weighty, heavy stuff in there. So Paul, he understands there needs to be a pause in this letter. All right, let's summarize, he says. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation that God has given, one will speak in tongues or a spiritual language, and another will interpret what is said. But here it comes. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. And in the Greek, the word is edify, to build up. 
The reason why it's important, whether you understand it intellectually or not, is because this immaterial part of yourself needs to be built up. And it bypasses the mind that has limitation. So not only has God created this supernatural way for us to express ourselves to him in moments in prayer and worship that are unencumbered by human intellect and earthly language, but it's part of this gift, right? Because there's a principle at work in Scripture that out of the overflow of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. And then the Bible also says that we eat from the fruit of our lips. We eat from the fruit of our lips. So when you're in this moment of spiritual language, you don't need to understand what you're saying because he's building up the eternal part of who you are because you're creating a meal for your spirit, for it to feast upon until it's full. I try to tell this story at least once a year. Even in our natural world, Even in our natural world, you don't have to connect intellectually to be connected in the heart. So when Vanessa and I had our first child, Derek, who's turning 16, car insurance for 16-year-olds is sinful. Can I just give, whoo, Lord help us. If I'm at the window at Chick-fil-A the next time you pass through, right, it's because we put Derek on our insurance, right? So, like a lot of you did as as a dad, you're talking to this baby. From the moment you know that your wife is pregnant, you're talking to that baby. Even when you don't realize you're talking to that baby, if your wife's in the room, you're talking to that baby because he's listening. Because he's alive from the beginning. So when he was born, he was stuck in the birth canal which is very dangerous. And so the NICU comes rushing in, and, and, and right, you've got to get pushed back to the side as a father. You're, you, you have these expectations of what this first child being born is going to be like. Crisis is not part of your vision. Right? Heart rate begins to drop. Trying to pull it won't come. We didn't have any Doritos. <laughs> Seen that commercial? Oh, it's so funny. Uh, I just saw it today, sorry. I ruined your moment. So finally he comes. Right? And, they, and, and, and it's, you know, like 10 people. They're, they're all of these trained professionals, thank God for, for these people, right? And, and, and so they, they've got him in this little bassinet that's, that's made of fle- clear plexiglass, and he is screaming, screaming. Hasn't stopped since. And they're trying to suction his lungs and trying to get his heart rate to where it needs to be. And they're working on him. And right, he's just wailing. I mean, loud, screaming. Right, so I'm his dad. So I was like, I'm going to do something because that's we, we do stuff as dads, right? I don't recommend this. So I pushed the doctors out of the way, right? I can be a little forward. And I, and I got down on my knees, right? And his, his little head is right there through the plexiglass, right? And I just begin to talk to him. Derek, it's your dad. We're so glad you're here. We love you, right? Talking to him, I kid you not, screaming. All of a sudden, he stops. And he turns his head. And he looks right at me. And all the doctors and the nurses in the room, they all just stopped what they were doing. 
And they all had this look on their face of, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Because he knew who I was. He didn't understand the words that I was saying. He, he did not have the, his brain was not developed enough to, to, to process language, to understand meaning and words. But I tell you this, he knew who I was. He knew the sound of my voice. And he knew everything that I was trying to say, even though he understood nothing. Because there's the ability in our humanity to sometimes connect with people that transcends language. It's one of the reasons why every one of us should go on a foreign mission trip at some point in our life. And to have a conversation with someone about God when you don't speak their language and they don't speak yours. Because there's moments where you realize you both understand exactly what one another is saying, even though you understand none of it. If we can do that with each other, why would we not want to do that with God? Because when we do that with each other, it's some of the most beautiful moments of our lives. We live in this world. I appreciate the mind. I appreciate the important part that it's supposed to play because one of the great commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's an important part. of who It's not supposed to be left behind. But it's not supposed to be the only one that's ever in the lead because it's just in the list with the heart. And sometimes God wants you to connect with him at a heart level that's going to do things in you that the mind will never understand not until we get to heaven. Invite the worship team to come back up. If you want to read a book, if you're a reader and you're saying, Fred, I need to read more about what you're talking about, this book by Jack Hayford, I would say anything that Jack Hayford has ever written, if you want a book, pick a book that he's read. This is called The Beauty of Spiritual Language. It's one of the best books I've ever read on the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, spiritual language. He tells this story the beginning of chapter 8 about a Christmas in their house that he was all excited about because he, he talks about how his wife would always outdo him at Christmas, right? Always outdo him. He said, not this year, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the better of her. And so, right, they, they had winners and losers in their house just like ours. It's always a competition. And, and so he had this extravagant thing planned where he had all these different boxes and, and it wasn't just opening a box that was empty to get to the next box, but every box had its own gift, right? That's so good, isn't it? So some of you wives are elbowing your husband right now. Get this book and read it, honey. So the, and so she would open, and as she opened each, there was, there was another gift to be found until she got to the best gift at the end. Now he uses that as an illustration. He's, he's such a good teacher. In reality, the whole of salvation is wrapped up in one large package, Jesus so from the, the inception of our new life in Christ, we have the full bounty of all that is promised us. But just as my wife needed to unwrap each of the individual gifts within the larger gift box, it is similarly true that each of us is called to partake, to decisively open and receive to ourselves each of the many blessings and provisions and gifts that God has for us. There is a theological accuracy in the proposition that everything we receive from God is delivered to us when we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. But equally important, there is a practical necessity. This man can write, can he not? 
the application of each facet of God's resource for our lives depends upon our unwrapping what he's provided. You and I need to take and receive and open each portion within the promise. Taking it unto ourselves. Opening to the possibilities inherent in each part of the full dimensions of life we've been given through Jesus Christ. Stand with me. Father, I pray whoever that person is that you're after tonight who's living in the realm of inauthenticity and they need to break through into the realm of real Father, I pray that tonight they would give in. Father, I pray for anybody here tonight who's maybe hearing some things that it's very different from what they've heard before, that there's just going to be an openness in their heart to chew on God's Word and to let revelation take hold of their heart. I pray for the person that's here tonight, Father, that maybe they've heard many sermons like this before and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spiritual language is just something that's always seemed to elude them that maybe even tonight as we sing, something would break out in them. Father, I pray that as a church that you would always find us in a place, Jesus, of being willing to let you open our eyes anew and afresh. Find us hungry. Find us willing. Find us as a place that's always in order, but always hunger for the things that we will never fully understand with our mind. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.